exactly. can't trust anything. You can't trust anything. Think, speaking of Zero Trust, mm-hmm. hello and welcome to this amazing episode of the Tech Cube podcast powered by ECS. Um, I'm your host, Ben Shinobi, and you've got a co-host here, Andy Teb. Hello. And hey, Andy, how are you doing? Good, good. Very pleased to be here. Well, you're going to be a regular guest moving forward. Here you've got Jeff Hemman. Hey, guys. Hey, how are you doing, Jeff? Yeah, I'm not too bad this morning. Good, good. Uh, moving your sofa got what was all well and good? Yeah, so it's bloody comfortable. So I'll, I'll invite you guys <laughs> all over at some point. A big L-shaped sofa looks amazing. And then we've also got John Boyero from uh, HashiCorp. How are you doing, John? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, do you know what? We've been trying to do this for a while. We've had some mix-ups and hiccups, but we're, we're all here now. We're all happy and laughing. So yeah, we're going, we're going to be talking about Zero Trust today and um, seeing what the things we can do with Zero Trust and what it actually means for the industry and for companies and organizations that might be listening and people, um, you know, CISOs, CIOs, CTOs, those sorts of people that are listening and may, may be thinking, well, you know, Security is top of my list. We've had um, um, evolutions of the architecture within networks, private networks, and then moving on to the cloud networks. What does this mean now for us with Zero Trust? Hence the reason why John here from HashiCorp. So, you know, John and Jeff, you know, have been working on this for some time. Um, John, for people that don't know, do you want to just give an overview of what is Zero Trust? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, in my mind, and I guess this is my take, everybody's going to have their own take a little bit on what it represents. Uh, zero trust is not a product, right? Zero trust is not a, a new concept. It's really something that's been around for a long time. So you look at your own phone today and you you wonder if your messages are end-to-end encrypted, right? Or end-to-end trusted. Um, and it's the same concept with a zero trust, right? So we go from a world where we have data centers that are secure to have uh, access keys and maybe a face recognition or biometrics to enter a data center where the cable is trusted, right? Um, and you can figure, well, I own these servers. The communication between them is is trustworthy. Um, that goes into the cloud world or potentially even the local world where you may not trust your hardware or your you know operating system may be compromised. You don't know if you can trust your own resources anymore. So, um, in my opinion. Zero trust uh, is is a, a general concept that applies to everything from people and information to systems and information in a way that uh, you know it makes perfect sense. I want to make sure that my communication between points A and B are both trusted that they're they're um, authenticated. I'm assured that I'm talking to the right person, and I'm assured that that data is not seen in between us, right, or not modified between us. So um, the, one of the downsides of it, and if I were to take a marketing standpoint on the, the name Zero Trust, I think it has a negative connotation to it. So, you know, I, I tell the customer, oh, hey, you should uh, implement Zero Trust. And in my mind, if I first hear that, I think that sounds negative. I don't want Zero Trust. I want to be able to trust my devices. So I would almost rename it uh, end-to-end trust, right? Because some people think Zero Trust sounds bad. I don't, I don't want that. Well, the actual concept is great. It's like, well, you need to assume that you can't trust anything and you're implementing a way to to make sure that that works. Um, and again, not a product, just more of a mentality and how you design your solutions. So that's how I view it. Yeah. So Andy, I want to jump to you. What was that your thoughts around Zero Trust and, and how you've seen it come around? So, yeah, I mean, luckily, very old. 
So seen this a few different flavors of it. So it's like it's interesting. Like John, I absolutely understand where you're coming from when you say you know zero trust, negative connotations. It's it's not the kind of thing that an ad agency would say that's amazing. But actually, for me, the negative connotations are slightly different, um, which are I, I kind of lived through that horrific security period where it was like, we'll lock everything down and we'll only free it up when you can prove you need it. And it was like that Dilbert cartoon where the network is secure. No one can use it. Um, and and it was just so painful to get things done in large enterprise organizations, you know, proving that you needed to unlock something. Something was a real performance hit that you couldn't do your job without it. And one of the things that I really welcome about the new product suite and sort of HashiCorp very much leading edge of that is the fact that it makes it easy to adopt that posture. If I don't understand it, I'm going to lock it down. But actually, if we understand why it needs to be unlocked if we understand why it needs to be opened up and we've got another mechanism for securing it it's very quick with a product like uh terraform or vault to respond to that and actually they're not alone in that um you know other products also make life easy in that but one of the things that i really like about uh terraform particularly is how much easier there's like an acknowledgement about how difficult organizations can be to manage so the modularity of it the clarity of it the fact that you can change components of it without affecting other parts mean that for example if you happen to be living in a big bank um, which is where i spent most of my life uh, it makes it much easier to do the change control on the bits that you actually want to change rather than having to go around a million owners who might also be impacted by the configuration as code and get everyone to agree to it. So it's, it's actually that thought about not only is it easy to execute those changes, those those openings up on a modular scale, but also how that will work in an organization that needs those processes behind it. It's not just a technical challenge. It's also how do you take the organization along with you in, in beginning to get used to this posture of we can, we can open things up fairly quickly. So it's okay to be a bit less trusting. So I guess it's slightly more nuanced. But yeah, when I first started hearing about zero trust, I was like, no, we can't go back to those days where <laughs> I can't do anything. I've got to prove that I need to be able to do things. So I, I think I think it does have those difficult marketing connotations. So I get where you're coming from. But I think it's something to be welcomed. The more you read about it, the more excited you get. Um, but do you see that resistance from customers when you start talking about in terms of not just the name scares me, but I've been here before and it was horrible and I don't want to go back to that life? Uh, do I see it? Yes, absolutely. Um, and not only that, but I, I, I'm more likely to see someone that says, oh, I've already got IPsec. I've already got a VPN. I'm protected. And, so mission you know, accomplished, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Like, no, you're network to network protected. You're not point to point protected, right? So yeah. it's like a doctor's office. Like, uh, you know, I've, I've come down with some terrible embarrassing infection and the doctor shouts out in the waiting room, like, oh, we're ready to see you about your infection. And like, well, the whole waiting room yeah. just heard you, you know? <laughs> so so if you're- And if it makes it- it makes it so difficult to manage as well in, in my experience. Like I absolutely agree with everything Andy said, except for the past tense when he talked about the painful days, because it's been barely a couple of months. I was on, on a project where I had to spend, I, you know, I think it literally took me the better part of a day putting in a request for all the individual IP addresses to be whitelisted for this app to talk to its counterpoint in the other network. And uh, it just makes it absolutely uh, static and unscalable because if one of the IP addresses changes, which happens all the time in the cloud, uh, you know all all your rules now need to be updated. Um, so zero trust one of one of its pillars is uh, that we use 
identity ba- identity based um, permissions, not uh, IP based permissions, right? And uh, HashiCorp's got really great products that that help with that, and not just HashiCorp, obviously. Um, thinking about uh, the the modern cl- um, container orchestration tools as well, um, it's it's there's a there's a definite shift towards not where am I? Well, I'm in the one to seven point such and such network, but who am I? I have uh, maybe a certificate to prove I am this sort of app, or maybe I have um, uh, credentials that I get through something like Vault to say I I am fulfilling this role. I should be allowed to do this, right? And it's absolutely like like Johnny says. It's not just because I'm in the same room as someone else uh, that I should be privy to all that information that floats around there. There were like logical fallacies around that, right? Like in the old days, it'd be like, well, you know, we'll secure it by that IP. And and you're quite right. It wasn't actually proving that you were the person you were saying you were. You just happened to be in the right place at the right, you know, it's like you're using the right system. And it wasn't always the best. That that move to identity-based, again, is really exciting. But yeah. again, I think that a lot of security and networks teams particular are like, well, you can mimic a person. Can you mimic the physical address? Yeah, because it's an IP address. It's not a physical address. You know, it's it's the way we think about these things and the kinds of things that as an industry we've always held to be true. Um, and it sounds so silly, but actually there's like real pillars of like the philosophy of security that have existed. And you're like, guys, they're not real. That, so that's really uncomfortable for some people. Sorry, Ben. Yeah, it's, it's, no, no, you're absolutely right, especially if you start then looking at you know the lower level, you know uh, uh, yeah. ARP that protocol that you know gives you an IP address. How easy it is to to kind of trick it and tell the whole network that you're in that you're actually uh, the machine with this IP address, and then suddenly now you have access to uh, all the secrets and you have all the permissions that um, whoever is meant to have that IP address uh, is meant to have. So a- absolutely right. It's it's just a model that's. Uh, that's not suitable anymore. So when we talk, it's very good that we're talking about the model and we're talking about um, sort of like the idea and philosophies around zero trust and how companies, um, what what should they should be considering when when going in this journey. Now, we're all very, very privy to, you know, transformation and digital transformation and being on that journey. Where does, and I've heard, sorry, multiple times before that we're always trying to shift left when we're coming to testing and security and stuff in that sense. So on the on the transformational form, if a company is now moving over to cloud, moving all of their, their, their information over to that space, they're worried about security, they're worried about who can access it. John, how does how does how does HashiCorp and Zero Trust fit into that transformational piece? Uh, sure. So, if I look at the example that Jeff gave with Vault, right? Vault is great at secret protection, secret generation, right? So much like you use a DHCP server to say, "Give me an IP address, good for half an hour, good for a day." Vault can give you a database credential or a cloud credential, good for a half hour, a day, whatever you specify, right? And then it will be released or or revoked after that. So we treat secrets like we do um, dynamic IPs, just like everything else in the cloud. Now, that will help you control access, help you control and even encrypt data at rest, uh, which it's great at, but it won't help your network, right? So that's where console comes in for us. So console, which Jeff talked about identity and really service-based access control, 
console has already had service discovery since its uh, initial releases years ago. It knows where your services are. It knows what those IPs are at the moment. And it knows um, if configured properly what routes to use to get there. Um, step two is intentions, right? We, we've added the service mesh bit where we use intentions uh, in lieu of firewall rules. So you're not just saying IP one is allowed to talk to IP two. Um, which doesn't protect me from encryption. It doesn't enable encryption, right? It doesn't do anything beyond limit access at the moment to those IPs. We now um, enable between two services, no matter where they are, no, many, no matter how many replicas you have on the other end. Yeah, identity-based. Um, exactly, identity-based. So yes, I'm allowed to talk to this endpoint. Um, and yes, console will enable that. And also will do that uh, with mutual TLS, right? So if you're familiar with a TLS and um, aka uh, SSL, there's the traditional standard TLS, which is one to many, right? So like I'm a server and anybody can talk to me encrypted. Um, the further step and the most trustworthy step obviously is mutual TLS. So I'm a server, you can talk to me encrypted only if I give you a client certificate, which has an expiration, which has, you know, a guaranteed access to a certain point. Um, and, and that's been the most secure way to communicate across uh, a trustworthy or not trustworthy network for years, but it's also difficult to set up. So now console is doing that for you automatically based on intentions. So in transit, console is king for us. Um, if it's configured to, to enable all your services, whether they're in Kubernetes, pods, containers, uh, bare metal or VMware, or even hybrid environments, maybe you have ARM infrastructure talking to x86, all of that is is um, tra transparently handled by console in a great way. And then for your secrets and your data at rest, maybe something you need to encrypt in an application, that is is Vault's specialty. So those are our two standout products on, on Zero Trust. Yeah, and um, another, another really interesting aspect of your question, Ben, was you talked about shifting left, which is obviously a, a great trend and, and one that I strongly agree with. And um, I think that... HashiCorp products in particular enable us to do that, to, to adopt a more DevOps kind of way of working by not saying, okay, security, that's, that's not the job of the developers. You just write your code and you make sure that the functionality works. And then we have another team that later on um, kind of implements security on top of that. But now everything is accessible to the developers. You just have to know the hashi products a little and there's brilliant uh, learning material online and there's great documentation everywhere so developers are actually able to think about these things like identity-based uh, permissions and, and and such um from the beginning when they start implementing uh, their microservices uh, perhaps so yeah that enables us to do that that shift left thing and obviously makes it much more secure by design, right? Rather than kind of um, uh, adding it on top afterwards. But now, it's also, oh, sorry, go on, John. I was going to say, um, in addition to that, I, you know, I talk about Vault and Console. Um, further down the pipeline in our emerging space where we've developed new products, we've got Boundary now. Yeah. Um, and, ah, were you, going, were you going to mention Boundary for me? All right. <laughs> I mean, it was going to come up inevitably, right? Yeah, but yeah. You go Jeff first. seems very, very excited about boundary. It is very exciting. 
Excellent. I've read so, one blog post that is it. But <laughs> you did, all right. That's Fantastic. It. No, no, no. But that was weeks back. And it's like, if it's the product I'm thinking of, but I know nothing about it, I was gonna ask you, I was gonna say that was the best explanation I've ever had of console. Can you do Nomad next? But if you can do boundary, I'll be really pleased. I could yeah. do Nomad. I'm I'm happy to talk about Nomad. It's not as applicable to zero trust, but it's um, got um, nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, but so, yeah, do boundary, yeah. So Boundary, in a nutshell, is sort of a modern take on on a PAM solution, right? So, so if you talk about privileged access management, something in an enterprise where you've ever had to use like a, a power broker or some other escalation system, say authenticate and give me elevator privileges for a half an hour to do something I need to do. Um, and then those sessions also were based on IPs generally or CIDRs, you know, network ranges, and then audit trailed. So potentially a large enterprise would need to have everything recorded that you've done between point of escalated privileges and, and the end of that use. Now that solution doesn't exist for a cloud in a cloud world where again, IPs are changing and um, maybe cloud native uh, features like uh, cloud native databases are used. There's not exactly an easy way to connect that temporarily in in a, a privileged way that a company will want to do an audit trail on. And Boundary, um, even back to two years ago, I remember being at our, our internal conference and there was some rumblings about, are we going to acquire a solution for this? Are we going to build our own? Um, and obviously HashiCorp uh, being still focused on innovation and, and building a common platform, we decided to build from scratch. So it is early stages. I think 0.4 was released recently. Um, so things like SSH, give me SSH to this machine or this environment, which again, I don't know the IP address maybe, I just need to get access to a certain cloud resource and um, do so in a way that I'm authenticated by an external mechanism like OIDC or one of my external directories and then have that flagged and audit trailed as some somebody's accessing this resource. Um, session recording isn't there yet, but that will be here very shortly and uh, enterprises all over that because they want to be able to see what people are doing with their pseudo credentials or what they're doing with the database administrator credentials in in elevated privilege mode. So Jeff, Jeff is just chomping at the bit here. You can you can. Sorry. I, go ahead. No, no, absolutely. I was I was just excitedly uh, pointing and thumbs upping, which will, will obviously be lost to people listening to the uh, audio version of the podcast. But uh, no, I mean, it's I'm very excited about Boundary. With, with Boundary, if you have session recording, which otherwise is, you know, quite cumbersome to implement, but uh, you, you can see why that's really interesting for big enterprises. And, and what I find exciting about Boundary with, with regards to zero trust is that it extends that idea of we don't have... Uh, specific networks or subnets we trust, right? It's not like, um, which is still currently the most common practice nowadays, you connect to a VPN and then you're in the VPN and now you're trusted. But um, you still can't or shouldn't trust everything that is connected to the VPN for every kind of system you want to access internally. So now you have layers upon layers upon layers of, uh, of firewall rules and so on that are still all coarse-grained. They're just different levels of coarse-grained. So with Boundary, it actually extends that identity-based access pattern to the internet, right? I sit in maybe in a Starbucks with my laptop, not that I've ever done that officially, uh, and I connect uh, to Boundary. I don't have to care about uh, encryption. Like John says, I don't have to care about the actual IP address of 
the database I want to connect to um, effectively. I don't care about that. That's all abstracted away. I just say to Boundary, uh, literally just what's relevant. I am such and such identity. I need to connect to such and such system. And it takes care for me of um, making sure I have access, of uh, securing it, of finding the actual target system I want to connect to, and of um, of establishing that connection for me with uh, the right parameters. It's very exciting. It's, um, I think, I think again, being a little bit old fashioned, uh, one, one of the things that really, because I didn't really, that again, John, is probably the best explanation I've had. Because I only read that one blog post and was like, I think I understand what's going on here. But it's nice, always nice to speak to an expert. I've got two on the uh, chat. But um, the, one of the things that I really like about that auditability requirement is that, you know, I mean, we talk a lot in the industry about, oh, you know, it's great having things like cryptocurrency because then everyone knows what's going on. The reality is that for most transactions that most of our clients are bothered about, really they're fine they know who the other party is and they will sue them into non-existence if they are naughty right and but there's always this security posture around well you know i've got to prevent everything happening in the vast majority of cases bad behavior between companies can be stopped by having that auditability because then you can go back and you can say you know they're not they're not going to be able to do enough that is naughty and result in enough money in their pocket that they can move to a non-extradition country and don't care so it's, it's actually the that having that auditability actually makes a lot of security people much more relaxed. And those capabilities haven't been there really particularly well in the, in the, in the sort of new world that we live in. You have to, you have to do a lot of real time monitoring stuff and also like it only goes back 30 days and all that kind of stuff. Whereas opening this up for sort of company to company discussion, uh, sorry, yeah, interaction actually makes security people a lot more relaxed. I'm not saying it allows you to open up the world and abandon zero trust, but if they've got that view and they're really clear on what happened during that stuff, I actually don't think necessarily they need session recording for that kind of thing, but it's something that's been missing in the past. Like if I turn to admins and go, well, you know, can you see who changed that object? No, because I didn't think to implement it, but that's where people like Jeff come in when they actually <laughs> teach you. They teach you how to properly implement the product, right? But the but the reality is having that capability there. Um, it, it just normal human beings' behaviour. It will make security teams a lot more relaxed about these B two B transactions, particularly. Yeah. I know it won't be suitable for everyone, but yeah. you know, it's funny now. I now I picture this like noir style novella about jeff doing forensic uh private investigation everywhere he goes like who attacked the system and you show up with a cigarette and a fedora on and shadows and like yeah well let's see your logs I'm like what logs <laughs> no no so it's funny um boundary oh, does good. this at the, at the at the service level and you know for for um for years i guess vault has had a similar feature uh, vault does ssh credentials right so vault will do an ssh ca that you can ha say um no, I will issue short-term access to root via SSH to a certain box. Um, it's a generic secret. It works. It has an expiration. And people use that for secure systems everywhere right now, uh, even with the control groups feature. So, yes, okay, I'm requesting root access to a production machine that's managing millions and billions potentially of transactions. I'm not going to be able to do that alone. So I need a control group. I need to be able to have three people on my LDAP group uh, approve this token before I can read that credential. And it's all well and good to have three people approve that. But then once it's all said and done, okay, what did you do in that session? There's no session recording, right? So even that 
has been kind of a roadblock on the vault side. So there is a feature gap between vault and boundary to some extent, and people don't always understand that. Um, yeah, I think if there wouldn't be, HashiCorp wouldn't have gone through the trouble of creating a whole new product that's identical to one of their, right? Uh, right. I think, uh, Johnny, we've talked about it before. Pragmatism is one of the one of the key, I don't know if it's one of the values or one of the towers of HashiCorp, but don't do anything that doesn't actually bring value. And you can really see that in... Uh, in most of the HashiCorp suite. Um, also, yeah, about session recording, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Johnny, or if, if it's still on the roadmap, but uh, Boundary is, as opposed to like Vault, which understands SSH credentials enough to actually give me one dynamically if I ask for it. Um, Boundary is actually protocol aware, so Boundary uh, will be able to have a more fine-grained fine uh, version of sudo to say you are allowed to run these commands and you aren't allowed to run these commands. Or at least I can imagine that be yes. possible yes, so, for SSH and maybe for SQL as well and, and so on. Yeah, so you could think of each kind of uh, protocol as a plugin, right? So yeah, yeah, you could do sudo and obviously sudoers file will have your limited commands that things you can run. Um, those are at the PAMP level, kind of, kind of limited, right? You, I can run this command or that command, but Boundary can go further and to say any command exactly. with this this uh, regular expression in it is not allowed. So, yeah, it will do further filtering on things you can and cannot do, um, which is really powerful if you if you're thinking about you know uh, convert this this five thousand Bitcoin into my account from the company, transfer this this laundry <laughs> money into you know pocket A or B. Yeah. So you're going to be able to limit things quite a bit more granularly. There's a really interesting point you raised there, Jeff, around the sort of HashiCorp, you know, don't do it if it hasn't got value. And I absolutely get that. But it I I, I obviously am a lot less involved with HashiCorp than you are, Jeff. But well the one of the things that has always struck me about the organization. And this is an aside, it's not really a zero trust thing, it is, but from looking from outside, you see like new features get developed and a lot of them seem to get developed internally and by very senior people as well who seem to be like coding in their spare time. So I get they're not bringing something to market that doesn't add value and stuff, but it always seems to me, I have this image and it might be romanticized, John, but it's like just guys within the firm going, I see a gap. I'm going to try and develop something for that. And they almost start doing it as a hobby before they're clear on what the value of that is. They, they know there's a gap. They're not necessarily clear on what the end value of that is. It almost feels like development for sort of curiosity rather than necessarily going, I'm going to take this to market as a marketable product. And then these things might turn into something. Absolutely. That, right, there is that area. Well, well, not, not just that, but have you heard recently about Mitchell's announcement? So Mitchell Hashimoto uh, decided, you know what? The company's going in a great direction. The board and the business side is managing it well. I'm going to step down from the board and be just a contributor, right? So he's always been an no. engineer, loves the product, loves the ingenuity of developing something new, and he doesn't need the overhead of sitting in board meetings, right? So he's uh, voluntarily stepped down to say, I want to focus on what I love, which is fantastic in my mind. He's my personal hero right now. Yeah. Um, so I, I hadn't heard that, but it is not a surprise at all. Given yeah. That, you know, it, right. Okay. Oh, that is interesting. All right. Yeah. That yeah. is, that is fre fresh off the, fresh off the press. It is. But I, I wanted to, I wanted to also move, uh, look at another section. So, you know, we've spoke about implementing and the transition of moving into cloud and that customers should really look into and, and, diving deep into the different aspects of what HashiCorp could 
um, could offer. I want to also add another layer to this, and I want to get people's opinion on this. We have CI and CD. Now, with the, the, the blogs and stuff that I've been reading on, there's this or isn't a concept. There's this thing of continuous integration, obviously continuous delivery, continuous development. But is the next layer, or the added layer, um, continuous identity or being able to continuously identify someone to be able to access the things or that they need? Is that something that is now going to be something that needs to be implemented or added to that sort of like CICD pipeline? What, what, what are your thoughts, Jeff? I'll start with Jeff so I, first. I, I think that's actually, uh, if you didn't do it on purpose, that's actually quite uh, a good sales pitch for Vault because that's in a way exactly <laughs> exactly what it does. Uh, Vault has this kind of three-pronged approach. On one, on one hand, you have authentication methods where you, as a user, either a human user or a, a machine and app, authenticate yourself to Vault somehow. And then it's got some whole uh, kind of policy identity management thing in it. And then it's got um, authentication methods, which are able to give you access to uh, other things. And actually, that enables that continuous uh, identity thing, which I, I, I think as such might just be a new, new term you've coined. Um, but it means that I can pick one of my ways of identifying myself, right? That might be my company uh, LDAP server or Active Directory server. It might be my GitHub account. It might be... Uh, log in via Facebook if you really want to, right? So I can choose one of these methods, um, authenticate myself to Vault, and then Vault will just uh, manage all the credentials that I need for other systems, be that logging into the cloud, uh, be that logging into the database, be that getting SSH credentials, be that storing actual passwords on Vault directly. Um, so I don't need to manage a million different ways of uh, authenticating myself to different services and different endpoints anymore. I just have my one go-to one, which also means, uh, incidentally, I won't have like half a dozen passwords that I never use and that um, are just long-lived somewhere on a server, on a piece of paper that a, that a hacker or a malicious coworker might find, right? I just have my one identity, just like in real life. I'm just Jeff Hemmen. I don't, I don't have or at least I don't openly admit to using uh, different IDs in different contexts, right? It's just always me. Uh, and then uh, absolutely, you have that continuous identity where you, you say, it's me, um, what am I allowed to do? And actually, I had a great analogy, uh, John, feel free to rate this out of 10, uh, about boundary. So whereas before, uh, imagine you come to the office building, you wave your office pass at the security guard, and, you know, I've, I've gained access to office buildings with ludicrous security passes, ones that were completely wide and just had my name printed on it, not even a picture. So the security guard sees something that looks like a badge and says, OK, you're allowed to enter the building. And now I'm in the building. I can go into any room. And it's up to me to know where I should go, where I shouldn't go, to know where it is that I want to go. Boundary is I come to the, uh, I come to the front door and I have a personal escort who will uh, verify my ID once and will accompany me everywhere I need to go and tell me where to go. So I say I need to get to, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't say I need to get, get to room 305 on the fifth floor. I say I need to connect to the database for analytics. And then um, the escort says, okay, you are such a person, you are allowed to go there and follow me. This is where it is, right? Is that, in your opinion, a good, uh, a good analogy? 
John. And Ben, that's exactly the, the continuous identity type of thing. I just say to the guard once, this is who I am. I don't have a million different readers in a million different doors once I'm inside the building as is best practice, or sorry, best practice, current practice nowadays. But it's just that once this is me, now let me do what I need to do well, for my job. Absolutely. And and the missing piece of that, I would say, is expiration on your badge, right? So you get into the building, your badge oh, yeah. is good for half an hour, and you're still there two hours. You know, it's almost like a visa. Like, yes, I'm allowed to get into the country for a year. Five years later, <laughs> you're still there, you know? Yeah. Um, it's amazing how many uh, encryption uh, implementations, or in the case of like TLS, SSH implementations, don't necessarily expire your session when you're in the middle of it, right? Like, oh, you're only good for half an hour. That means you can authenticate for up to a half an hour, right? Let alone continue to sit around for five days in an idle session. So you have to be careful how it's implemented. The, 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 key, um, the key to complexity in, in security is time, right? It doesn't matter if you're using a 2048-bit key or 4096-bit key. If in the future, say, quantum computing can suddenly break that in a day, right? Um, the key value in protecting yourself is time to make sure that everything is short-lived so that even if some, you know, secret government computer somewhere or or nefarious uh, quantum device can break your encryption in half an hour, your certificates are only good for less than that, right? So even if somebody gets your logs down the road, hopefully uh, they are not able to make use of them in the given time. So it's a constant race of, short-lived credentials versus short-lived time to compromise or time to break encryption. And in, especially in the case of logs, you talk about CICD, uh, and anybody that's got a, a secret, a static secret coded into their CICD pipeline uh, and then has those logs digested the next day, somebody looks at the logs and says, hey, I see a password here. I'm going to try it, right? That's, that's mm. 101 to compromise. That's how you've been compromised. Make sure that everything used in your pipelines is dynamic, is generated and revoked by the time somebody gets to see those logs. Because odds are someone found a way to output your credentials or your environment variables into the logs, which is how you get owned really quick. Um, you always have to think about time. It doesn't matter how complex your, uh, your encryption standard is, how complex your authentication is, as long as somebody can break that before your, your session TTL, you might potentially be compromised, right? So... And yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think that fits in, even if I say so myself, really nicely with my private escort analogy, because uh, the, the, the first one where no one checks if your certificates expire, like, like John said, you enter the building, it says you're allowed to be here for 10 minutes, and then you end up hiding in the restroom, right? Um, but if you have your private escort, uh, even if you're in the middle of, of doing something, uh, they'll say, hey, your credential expired. I'm sorry, I can't let you touch anything anymore. Uh, please leave. And obviously that sounds, uh, I know what Annie's going to say, that doesn't sell well, but uh, it, it sounds really cumbersome. But um, Vault obviously caters for that and you can renew your credentials if you're still uh, allowed to do so and, and stuff. But crucially, the functionality is there that if you only have access for a limited period of time uh, and especially in, in, in the contingency, um, that it gets compromised Right, like a Dan Brown-esque supercomputer in, in, in a government secret location uh, actually manages to do that. That's actually one of the books he wrote. Um, then you can just say to the guard, okay, this isn't valid anymore. And he'll escort you out or she or they. Um, but if you're in, 
obviously you're in. So absolutely, and, and, absolutely agree. And I, I, I think that's cool because the, the saleable fact is that extending that is easy. Like, like you say, right? So, so actually, you know, it's painful exactly, yeah. if it's horrible to extend that. But having time bound is great, right? Because actually, again, you make security people more comfortable. When they start to see and they understand the product, they, they increase the trust in you, what you're trying to achieve with your product, and your whole life becomes a lot easier. But I think I'd misunderstood before when um, John was explaining boundary, your your analogy kind of brought it to life a bit more there, Jeff. I guess the way I'd imagine <laughs> the way I'd imagined it um, in your analogy, it would be more the the security guard who's following you around the building and he's not really able to intervene. So it was more like a personal CCTV. So you could go off and do something that you weren't supposed to be doing, but they saw you do it. And what you're actually saying is that that actually you're only allowed access to the resources. Think of it. Think of it that you enter the building and they tie a long string to you, and everywhere you go, suddenly they tug <laughs> your string and they pull you out of the building, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah as long as yeah. as long as your session is is being um, conveyed by a middleman or by the in this case boundary, it's able to cut it off, right? No matter where you are. So yeah. Yeah, but it's not just um, that. It's also preemptively allowing your resources or not without it being a hassle for you. Like whereas before you get access to the building and then maybe if you want to go to the first floor where all the database servers are, you need to badge in again and maybe have a different badge because it's a different frequency or key code or something and you keep forgetting them. Whereas here, the guard badges for you because they say, okay, this is Jeff. Jeff's allowed access here, which I know. So I'm going to badge him through. So I don't have to care at all. I don't have to even know where I'm going. I just follow the guard. And once I'm in the server, the guard also uh, knows exactly what I'm allowed to do on these servers because, like we said, um, Boundary is, or at least can be, uh, plugin-based, right, can be protocol-aware. So could, could, could say stuff like, okay, in this room, Jeff's allowed to do read requests only. He's not allowed to write anything and so on. Yeah. So I'm glad I'm I'm glad that I brought something new to Jeff. John, I don't know if you have <laughs> if you have if you have heard continuous identity, but you're free to take that and run. No, I'm so. not. It's recorded here, your trademark. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna trademark a continuous identity. Yeah. That was something that I, I, I read um earlier as well. But yeah, it, it was I thought it was a good analogy. But you you you've all touched on something that's very, very, very um interesting. So you know, implementing all of these solutions, having someone uh, walk around, the, if you take Jeff's analogy, walk around the building with you and escort you to the specific areas that you need to, you need, you're allowed to go to based on your permissions and credentials and stuff like that is going to add an extra layer of un- security that can be quite heavy on your network and heavy in your organization. How, just explain, if if Jeff, if John, if you want to just walk us through, is that something that someone like a CISO or a CIO, CTO should be worried about? The extra added layer of heaviness that can be added to their to either their network or their their organization. Should they be worried about it? Um, no, I well, I, I'm, I'm biased, obviously, right? But the idea <laughs> is it should be simple. It should be, uh, you know, something that you're not having to really add on and complicate your network, it should be seamless. So we talk about these plugins and the database functionality, you know, it boundary should take care of everything for you. Um, as long as you can figure that properly, all plugins, all protocols, everything that is being used to communicate with boundary 
should be transparent. And um, I mean, is it a little bit of overhead to set it up? Yes, but generally you're looking for a solution that does this, something like this anyway, right? In fact, if you're doing a traditional PAM solution where you're uh, dealing with physical servers or you know static IP addresses, that's something that you you won't have to add to that. You could potentially combine uh, the use cases, right? So it's not almost like a net zero in, in some cases. Depends on how you're implementing it. Um, and again, Boundary is very early stages. So I've, I've, uh, as I work with the partners, I've gotten quite a few questions about it, and I often have to check live with the Boundary team. What's today's build? Um, and I, you know, back on the innovation and, and Mitchell Hashimoto's side, I've seen Mitchell present things to a group of 100 engineers on a on a serviette, right? <laughs> he literally, literally <laughs> will draw things with a marker, put them on a projector screen, or draw things in Microsoft Paint and say, this is what we want to make. And then in a week later, there's a there's a proof of concept build. So yeah, you never can tell. Uh, early stages, 0.4 will turn hopefully into a 1.0 release in, I'm guessing, about a year. Uh, but what it looks like at that point is anybody's guess. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, some of the, the boundary leads actually came from the Vault team originally and were some of our sharpest engineers. So I'm really look forward, looking forward to what they've got in the pipeline in the roadmap. Um, and I think there is a public roadmap because it is open source only right now. So if anybody's curious, uh, I can I can pull that up for people. I, I also link get in the really, podcast description below. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I also get I, I get uh, for someone who's like a bit, you know, oh, we've got to make this so it's uh, not too cumbersome for the operators of these systems. I actually get really annoyed at that whole, because um, it, it's always existing in IT, right? Like, uh, well, these security standards have made our products really slow. You know, it's kind of like, well, no, your product yeah. is really slow. Um, and it can't <laughs> it can't exist within the, um, you, you know, these solutions can't exist in isolation, right? And one of the things that I really enjoyed about, you know, you know, about when I first started working with Uban and certainly Self-Jeff is that awareness of the broader disciplines. You know, I think I think ECS was always quite good at that. If you look at things like treating security as just another NFT um, and bolting it into the um, test automation. So, like, daily with your code, making the unit test something that's actually useful. Um, you know, don't send it to QA unless you're getting green ticks across the board. And part of that at places like, um, you know, BP includes doing all the security tests whenever you're saying your code is ready to ship, right? If you can't clear these NFT requirements, your code is not ready to test. Go away and look at it again. And it, it, you see a lot of developers going, well, my code is fine, but security is really slowing it down. Yeah. And you're like, well, and no. you're right. So you talk about Dilbert and, and Mordak, the IT preventer, right? Um, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the good news is, uh, you know, if you have a system that doesn't integrate with your authentication right now, if you've got a single sign-on database or OIDC and it doesn't hook into your database or your application you're trying to connect to, uh, things like Boundary enable that, right? So you're not storing passwords inside Boundary. You're using Boundary to look up authentication via external, whether or not you use multi-factor tokens, that's up to your external auth. And then Boundary is enabling you to connect to that once you're authenticated. So in a way, it's kind of a blanket uh, connector, not a prohibitor, right? Yes, you're authenticated. Yes, you're recorded. Okay, go ahead and use the system that doesn't necessarily support authentication into our database of passwords. So in a controlled manner. Yeah, in a controlled yeah, yeah. and audited manner. Yeah. And you talk yeah. about slow, uh, slow things. 
um, in my mind, are you know an audit by the big four when you don't have logs. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah exactly. that's pretty slow too. Oh right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, don't get me wrong. Security standards should take into account what you're trying to achieve. They should be as lean as possible. They should be as configurable as possible because things are going to change. But but that whole thing ban around you know shift left that should include security and you know for years we've talked about democratizing all the disciplines including security and every engineer should have security in his kit bag when when your guys like you know when you talk to some of the you know really good people around test automation who view themselves much more as test coaches within teams people like matt lowry tom chapman those kinds of guys um, who are kind of, you know, decent-ish developers themselves, and they're able to coach the developers in building testing in, in there. That should include security. And when, when you're talking about secure by design, you want devs building it in, but also having that check and challenge of the test automation. And that's that's part of an overall discipline. It's not like, you know, HashiCorp will fix this problem. It's only going to be as good as the ecosystem in which it's being used, in which it's being implemented, in which the people have got that in the mindset. And that's where guys like Jeff are really good at going, this is how you correctly use the product, right? This this is how you correctly use the product, but it's got to exist within that ecosystem of you thinking security first. I want to be lean, but I want to be secure because you've got a duty of care for whatever it is you're protecting, not just the integrity yeah. of it so it doesn't get corrupted, but the integrity of it so it doesn't get corrupted on purpose. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad you mentioned uh, shift left and, and, and security by design again, because that's the point I was I was going to raise as well. Um, so the, the fact that, no, that's great. The fact that uh, developers are now responsible or part responsible for implementing these you know, security mechanisms uh, you know, across the stack almost, means that we can take performance issues into account that we can actually optimize uh, our app to have as little overhead as practical and um, because most you know most systems that you'll deploy uh, will be you know distributed so you can you can make sure that it's scalable so if it's slow the bottleneck is probably the application itself which is you know, doing a lot of, of, of the security negotiations and it's not something uh, lying on top of it on, on, on the network level, right? It, it's your application itself doing identity verification, doing encryption and so on. So if that's the bottleneck, you just deploy more of those instances. And I think this is where my otherwise brilliant analogy falls uh, falls flat. Uh, the fact that the security guard escorts you doesn't mean you have twice the network traffic, Right. On a more technical level, the security guard actually only lives on your boundary instances. So if that's too slow, just deploy another one. Just deploy another two or three or four or five, right? So um, that and the fact that this isn't necessarily a layer of security on top, but it can actually replace several other layers of security, um, to me, uh, makes the answer to your question from before, Ben, should people be worried? Just uh, a confident no. Don't be too confident because whenever it's secure, that's, that's just huge. Risk. I'm a consultant. <laughs> it's my bread and butter. <laughs> yeah, that's it, that's it. But, it's, but it's interesting where you, you know, talk about the, um, the the sort of everyone, you know, the devs being responsible for this. I think um, I, I'm I'm a little cynical on this, but I I think actually the devs, the admins, the networks guys, they've always been accountable for it. Right? You know, it takes a lot for a CISO to resign over a security problem. Because it's generally, oh, uh, yeah, we've already put things in place to resolve that. Some poor developer, some poor sysadmin definitely got fired for it. 
Hmm. And actually putting the responsibility in their hands, effectively, they've always been accountable for it. But actually having that ability to do something about it and to have the checks that show that you did what you were supposed to do and you followed best practice, you know, it's for me, it's a good thing generally. I understand why people might be nervous about it, but I think the the reality is you're always, your head was always on the block for it. So having the ability to do something about it makes for a much better life. Just my opinion, though. Just my opinion. We've definitely got some very, very good points, coining some very good terms right now. (laughs) This is going to be a marketer's dream. Um, So I'm going to shift shift quite um, uh, uh, left a bit with talking about containers. And we we spoke about this um, uh, a little bit before, uh, John, and the, the containerization and how that is affected with zero trust. And I know I butchered this before. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I'll try. I'll try. So I, I'm, it's not last year's containers, but containers that may be previous generations or, or previous versions. Why Why is it not a good idea to be able to have them? And what sort of challenges do they bring when talking about zero trust? Sure, sure. Now, there's a few um, a few industry events recently around this that come to mind. Um, and, and on the non-Hashi side, on the wider industry side, we've got um, the innovation of Control Groups version 2 in the Linux kernel. And it's been um, a few years, I guess, since this has been out. Uh, it was a major struggle struggle for Docker. In fact, Docker would not support a system running Cgroups version 2 on a modern system until fairly recently. Um, and now what this enables is, in, at the most basic sense, is rootless containers, right? So if you take yesterday's Docker containers, um, always running as root, always running as the same user, and always having access to potentially uh, you know, wider resources on a system, which is not ideal. If somebody escapes a Docker container running as root, you are hosed, right? Potentially. Uh, I, I don't know that that's occurred. I don't, I haven't seen anything documented on somebody doing that, but it was always problematic to say, I want to run this container as a different user, or I want to run a container um, as a, uh, you know, a different system user, I suppose, uh, not exposing root access to them just to run a container. Um, now, Podman has done this, and Podman is, is Red Hat's uh, or the wider community open source's uh, alternative to, to Docker, which is backwards compatible in some ways with Docker. Um, and Docker has now updated to include this by itself, right? So that's step one, being able to run a container on a system where you're not root. Step two, obviously, is the communication between those. And that was traditionally the most widely perceived uh, issue in in orchestration. So we had uh, Cube Proxy, which is obviously a way to proxy connections between NAT bridges. You know, every every Docker host, every container host will have a, a NAT bridge that those containers get an IP, or more more accurately, the pods get an IP. They can communicate between hosts, even though they they are between layers and layers of complicated networking. Um, and I did a, a, a just last week a blog post on console one point ten. Um, and where I think containers got networking wrong. And I, I, if you go back 12 or 13 years to LXC and Docker, um, every container was basically forced to have its own IP address because networking traditionally is where all security goes out the window, right? System level, you talk about ownership. I have this file or this directory. I'm owning it. It's my user and it's shared with this group with permissions to read, write, uh, execute, etc. That doesn't exist at the network level, right? You have an IP address, you have a port, and any other security is up to you, whether it's encryption or access, ACL. So um, 
console now supports UDS. Um, and I think this is a big, uh, a big, bigger feature than it sounds. It was kind of a minor feature, not really on the radar of most console users, but it's enabling Envoy Proxy to use its UDS feature. And what that means is I have a local file in my container that is a socket. It's a little bit confusing. It's, it looks like a local file, but it is a socket, much the way a Docker socket or a MySQL socket will, will be um, presented. I can connect to that whether I have a network at all, right? So I can run a pod or a container with no network, have this local socket, and then on the back end, console is forwarding that to an IP address or uh, a different service or even another socket on another container with no network. So I can essentially have hundreds of containers, each with no network, connecting to other services, not having an attack vector from the outside, right? Not being able to connect to the internet to start mining Bitcoin because I don't have a network. Um, and it's brilliant to see the innovations in the network sense of rather than a complex cube proxy, which enables system-wide or, or cluster-wide connectivity or an overlay network, which adds all kinds of complexity and also enables full network connectivity without encryption. Now I have, again, point-to-point -point connectivity in a way that is authenticated and encrypted. So everything is in, in transit encrypted and everything is um, ensured uh, authenticated with mutual TLS. Now, if you look at traditional uh, Kubernetes networking or orchestrator networking in the way it was three or four years ago, eventually I think they're going to look at that the way we look at Telnet today, right? Why was I ever able to enter a password <laughs> without encryption across a network? Um, that's the way that Kubernetes has been networking in large sense. If you're not using Istio or you're not using um, console or some form of, of service mesh, which enables Envoy or proxy with encryption, you are essentially running Telnet in your, in your orchestrator, which is not ideal. That's really interesting. Yeah, what, what are your thoughts, Jeff? Uh, well, yeah, so like I said before, uh, I wasn't actually aware of uh, of this in detail. Uh, John's blog is still on my, on, on my to-read list. Um, but thinking about it, he's absolutely right. So uh, I, I always like to dig into and have a look under the hood of all, all these things and, and what, you know, for example, Kubernetes actually does is it creates a lot uh, to stay, uh, to not use curse words here. Uh, it creates a lot of IP tables rules for all the different virtual IP addresses and stuff. But actually, if you have uh, access to the system, to the right aspect of the system, at least, you're still able to, uh, let's say, siphon all that traffic. And if it's not in itself uh, encrypted, which, you know, if you're using your um, your cluster network, you think, oh, this is all inside the cluster, this is all absolutely secure. But it's not because your cluster might span different nodes, your cluster might span, you know, different infrastructures, your cluster might be half on-premise, half uh, in the data center. Um, and then, so if, if someone has access to one of the nodes that's part of your, for example, Kubernetes cluster, they're able to see uh, all of that traffic, which is, which is unencrypted. And um, so yeah, this new UDS approach, it's, it's one that I kind of was wondering why that didn't exist yet, but without uh, giving it too much thought. But uh, I assume, and, and correct me if, if I'm assuming wrongly here, John, um, that's going to give us the equivalent of mutual TLS. So I say, um, okay, I want to connect to something else in the end. And then 
the orchestrator will take care of the routing and crucially will uh, do mutual TLS end to end so that it really is kind of well, actually, console will do that, right? Console will do the MTLS uh, using Envoy Proxy, right? So you don't technically have yeah, to be yeah. using Kubernetes for that or Nomad, the orchestrators for that. Although um, I expect native support to come very shortly in Nomad. And if you're using console Kubernetes sync, it does that with services with um, IP addresses. I've not yet tested if it does sockets, if they implemented the sockets for that yet. I'd be interested to see mm. it. But yeah, I, I mean, it's a it's a really taking the clock back 12, 15 years, I guess, to before every container had an IP address. And Jeff is absolutely right. If you look at IP tables on a on a Kubernetes node, especially run running Kube proxy, you'll see about I, I, I want to exaggerate maybe a thousand firewall rules, a thousand you know this IP can talk to that IP, blah blah blah, just for a simple few containers. And the, yeah. it's ridiculous. I, I, I'd like to know what the big O notation is for that. Like if you've got twice as many containers, you probably have four exactly. times as many rules or something like exactly. that. Exactly. And Docker Net is not cheap. Right. It's not, I shouldn't say it's not cheap. It's not free. So it takes CPU time. It takes time in the kernel. Absolutely. And in fact, um, recent version of the kernel, they had to replace IP tables with NF tables. Right. So they, in fact, Linux had to replace an entire core component with NF tables rather than IP tables um, just to optimize this. Like IP tables was designed for a VM, maybe a couple of uh, local containers or, or uh, namespaces within the, the, the kernel. Um, now it's dealing with potentially thousands of containers and how they how they route, right? So actually internal components of the kernel had to be upgraded just because of this. And it was never really necessary, if you ask me. Um, it's just that containers have taken networking the wrong way. And that's my opinion. That's my opinion. Uh, I, I'm sure the industry has its own thoughts as well. But yeah. Anyway, but, but you, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, uh, it's kind of product tech that, right? You know, everyone made the right decisions for what they thought was the right thing at the right time. And then we look back on it and we go, mm, you know, I mean, the answer is, you know, to your telnet point before, because it was pure and cool, you know, we, we solid it with security, you know? Yeah, it was just universities and obviously never would be ever malicious. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. ARPANET was great, you know, I mean, but... But yeah, no, I mean, that is phenomenally interesting. I was just sat there blown away while you two were chatting. I've got a stack of notes now on extra <laughs> things, extra things I need to go off and read. It's like it's like doing my open university course. It's like, right, I'm going to have to do a lot of reading. No. Yeah. <laughs> I am going to have to do a lot of reading, John. <laughs> Either that or have a half minute, half hour chat with Jeff, one or the other. But you know. Yeah, I don't. I don't think Andy gives his, himself as much credit as we all do for his knowledge and experience. No, I, I think that's the, that's the great thing of being in an environment like ECS. It's like we, we're all interested. We like to challenge each other. Um, one of my favorite quotes is, "If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room." Yeah. Uh, I, I don't. Th I don't think that applies uh, like face value here because we've all got different specialties. But, you know, I, I, I really like that pretty much everyone that I work with uh, in my job is really interested and, and, and is aware of how little they know. As weird as that sounds, that's a, that's, that's a great quality because as soon as you start to think, I know everything about X, well, firstly, you're going to try and use X as a solution for everything. And secondly, you don't know everything about X because that's not how tech works, right? And you, you have to question yourself in order to implement uh, the best and the most scalable and the most secure and the most usable uh, product for for the client, right? It's not, you know, 
we're not carpenters going to install the same door fitting uh, every time a million times, right? It's, but, it's, it's but, always... Yeah. Yeah. There's a really nice conceptual point there, Jeff, actually, that plays into overall security nowadays, particularly. But, but it's, it's across all solutions, and actually security is no different from it. It's like, traditionally, it's like if you went to a firewall guy and go, what's the answer for security? He'd go, it's firewalls. You know, it's like, oh, shot, he's got his hammer. It looks like a nail, you know. But AD admins, same gig, right? Same gig. It's like the answer was always about credentials, right? And nowadays, with all the solutions we're implementing, security is no different. What you actually need is incredibly good specialists with loads of different disciplines working together to achieve the, the, the overall solution, whether that involves Terraform, whether that involves the agile coach and the people who will do the transformation of the culture, all that kind of stuff. The Having those people, those multidisciplinary specialists working together gets you the best solution, but they need to be working as one. And to your point, I think that's where ECS is really good. And some of the other consultancies are really good at building those teams that are stronger than the sum of the parts. Um, so yeah, you're right. It might it might not be that you're the most interested, but um, certainly I always have this feel about uh, who's the most interesting. You know, I, I kind of sit there in those groups talking with you guys. It's like Jeff does Terraform, Tom does really good test architecture, someone else does really good Kubernetes, and Andy, what do you bring to the party? Contracts. Yeah, it's that idea about watching you guys come together, you know, back when people like Andrea used to work for the firm and stuff. And, you know, all those people are really good specialists and getting them together to get you the right solution because there is, there is a tendency. It would be easy, and it's really nice talking to, like, yourself and John, um, where HashiCore isn't the solution for everything. You know, yeah. it, it's part of the solution and you'll talk more broadly about the capabilities. Yeah. And a really Absolutely. nice example for that, because a lot of customers fall into that trap. Do you remember that deal we did together where we went to the bank and they were like that we were working with that customer and they were setting up what was quite a cool uh, sort of hub model for third party access. And it was like, we need yeah. we need HashiCore. And it was like, Do you need HashiCore? Let's just do a week, about eight weeks before we're supposed to start. Let's do a week together really dig into it and do you need HashiCore? And you just came back, Jeff, and went, they need so much more before HashiCore is the right thing. Which is is a good good point. And Jeff, I wanted to, before, before, just before we wrap up, we really want to get into this. So, what are some of the things that you're seeing on in customer on customer engagements around zero trust and security that you feel that could be either better implemented or thoughts and and concepts that they need to consider before even getting onto this journey? So what, so what sort of stuff that you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. So I had I had a bit of a think uh, obviously in preparation for this, and one of them uh, when we talk about <clears throat> zero trust uh, between services was the example I gave to to Andy before, where I spent the better part of a day putting in individual IP addresses for the firewall rules and having to select which department and which network and all sorts of other things, which I didn't know and didn't actually make a difference to the functionality and and wouldn't scale. So there's that. But um, I've got another uh, one or two examples about uh, human to service zero trust. So one thing that's happened to me and, and which is sadly still very common practice is I started a new engagement with a client and they sent me out a laptop, right? And um, obviously postal service doesn't have any sense of, of, of encryption. So I, I don't even want to talk about how likely it would have been 
for someone to intercept that laptop, just wait outside my house door and be like, hey, I'm Jeff. To just, yeah, give me this parcel. And then obviously the mailman wouldn't have cared. But then it's, it's a laptop, which is then trusted, right? That's not zero trust. That's the opposite. That is, you know, uh, pre, pre, pre-installed trust, so to say. So the fact that I can switch this laptop on um, means that I can now connect to uh, the corporate network and, and access all sorts of things. Uh, there might be additional really coarse-grained, uh, you know, uh, firewalls or something, but still. And then those laptops are encrypted with a password that's literally, I kid you not, along the lines of uh, hello January 2020 or something like that, right? And then you, you call IT because they're like, oh, you have to call IT to get the initial password. And then you think, oh, it, it'll it'll be specific to me or to my, my engagement or this laptop. I have to give them a serial number. And now IT just go, yeah, the password is hello123. And you think, okay, that's that's how we ensure trust to critical corporate infrastructure. That's crazy. Then, um, then you start it up and you find Bitcoin miners running on it because they forgot to wipe it. <laughs> yeah, the delivery guy got got uh, kind of hijacked it uh, yeah, well, in the way. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting example, though, because you look at a lot of IDMB type stuff for colleagues, like um, you know where you where you wanting to do identity and verification. A lot of systems, because, you know, I've spent that sort of life in banks, right? A lot of those systems yeah. really got challenged during the pandemic. So if you wanted to do IDMB and, you you know, for your initial logon, the systems were literally set up to go, right, I need a person in your department who we've already authenticated as properly called for IDMB. They oh, I've got on, a great story for well, that as well. Yeah, they need to come on the phone and verify it's you. Well, how do you do that when everyone's working from home? I mean, that is bad enough as it is, the fact that it's okay, this guy's good to give us a password over the phone and say it's definitely you. How do I know you're you, Jeff, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, but, I, but then how do you do that when you're not in the same location? And it blew people's minds. They'd never considered This is suddenly very I mean, e- either way, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, yeah. get the feeling that if something is really cumbersome, people just equate it to, to secure, right? Uh, I, I have a brilliant example for that. I, I had to call a bank that I was contracted out to um, to reset my password. So I give them my, uh, my user ID. And I, I think I tell them vaguely when I was born or something to to verify it was really me on the phone. Yeah. Um, but then the brilliant thing here is that uh, the person on the phone said to me, uh, we can't send uh, you the password directly for security. We have to send it to your manager. Now, we don't have an email address on record. What is your manager's email address? Yeah. <laughs> that's 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 brilliant. I, I just, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's um, funny that you go to banks like this and you think, well, they've got FIS compliance rules they have to follow. Everything is going to be real secure. Yeah. And you see this. And then you see a, a startup and they say, we don't need FIS compliance. We're not that advanced. Like, well, you know what? FIS compliance has some pretty basic things that make sense whether or not you are are held beholden, I guess, to FIS compliance, right? Um, yeah, and we so. look at the vault wrapped response. Like, I can take any credential that I generate have it wrapped so that I don't get to see it in a token. I pass you that token, and then it's mission impossible, right? This message will self-destruct after you see your credentials. So yeah. um, that's not exactly complicated, and that's not something that only banks should be following. That's something that everybody should be following. Uh, and it, and just to be clear, it's way better than it used to be, right? Like, I mean, and, and there is a tendency to say that, you know, when we did security in my day, you had to walk five miles through the snow and all that kind of stuff. But it, <laughs> but it, is, but it is much better now. So, I mean... 
you know, if you think about like the levels of risk around that, like, you know, what's the risk of a person doing this versus me deciding to expose my core banking system, right? And let's have appropriate levels of security. But you're right, Jeff, that, you know, if it's difficult, therefore it must be secure. In the old days, though, you used to see behaviors which are vanishingly rare now, where it was like, well, let's just clone the ID, right? But the person making the call was always the manager. So you suddenly ended up with all these people with managerial rights because they, <laughs> they cloned their own ID, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah. that is far rarer now. I mean, you come across it every now and again, but those kinds of things are pretty rare. So that's where it's really tough for us as engineers. Or, sorry, I'm being very grand there, but engineers when they get onboarded um, because you guys get onboarded, you've got your username and password and no rights to do anything. Because after that, you've then got to go on, got to get access to the repo, got to get access to the CICD tool, and got to get, and it makes the onboarding painful. But it's that difficult balance to strike. And you kind of, you see organizations going from a process point of view, we want to engineer this better, but you can tell where they've got good in massive air quote security teams or not, because a lot of the time those process engineers will do their utmost not to sort security. Because they're like, it, they'll slow it down. And you're back to that idea that is your process good? Is your security yeah. good? How do you make all this work together? You know, It's more than yeah. the technology problem. Sorry. Given my own history and services as well, I could always tell um, how much I was going to enjoy a, a customer engagement based on how many, how, much, <laughs> how many figures they rounded the contract to, right? If I walk into a big bank <laughs> with IBM or Red Hat and they say, okay, well, 10 or 15 million. Ah, let's go nuts, 20 million. I could tell that I'm going to spend more time onboarding there than I'll actually oh, yeah. do services. Yeah, because they they know that it will take yep. that long to on onboard your services. Yeah, versus somebody that actually counts the hours. Like, okay, you you know this counts. You're going to onboard me as quickly as you can, and you have something in place to make that smooth. So, yeah, mm, absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, we we have traditionally found that one of the better things to do is, you know, we have a role, the client side coordinator. They will do the onboarding for you. And we'll, we'll sit there with customers and go, let's be realistic, right? It's going to be four or five weeks. So let's let's get that geared up. We'll have this person do the onboarding. They're very good at it. They understand banks and how to do it. They're going to fill out all that paperwork. But our guy's not going to start until he's productive. It's, it's, it's a waste of time for everyone concerned, right? Absolutely. <laughs> but, definitely. So yes. those are definitely some of the challenges and good food for thought. Uh, around those mate so, yeah. everywhere i've sat yeah, of I've, course. sat I've sat there been asking being asked to read the paper and hang around at pharmaceuticals firms and mm, i'm like definitely yeah yeah <laughs> what i'll start billing when i can work you know yeah no definitely okay. definitely but yeah i think there's some very good points i think this was more of a promo uh, for the new HashiCorp uh, <laughs> product that's coming out we're looking forward to that but no it really, really good yeah, no, it it, it does. And I think we've coined some really good um, uh, theories. We've discussed some really good points. And, and I want to thank Jeff and John for their time being able to come on. Uh, Andy will definitely be back as a, my co-host moving forward. So, uh, yes, he's looking nervous. For people that can't see, he's looking very nervous and shy and quiet. Ben, ben that's just how I look. Resting <laughs> <laughs> nervous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I yeah. Do, I do it's it's all years working for the banks. Yeah, yeah. That, well, no, it's just. It's just existing. But the um, I think to um, John's point before, though, Ben, if the thumbnail for this podcast isn't a picture of Jeff in a sort of, you know, Black Dahlia type, <laughs> you know, he's have, that, that's where we should be going with this. Yeah, we, ha we have to make it. We'll get Jeff in the fedora for the thumbnail. That's right. It's not about uh, zero trust. It's about Jeff's forensic investigations. 
Yeah. Pretty much. John, Jeff, Andy, thank you so much for your time. And I, I want to thank all the listeners. Um, thank you for taking time. We'll put all of the information in the description below for you to, to look back on and read. So uh, this has been a TechQ podcast powered by ECS. Thanks for listening. Cheers, thank guys. you. Thank you. amazing episode i want to thank you for making it this far and just showing your support for the tech cube podcast powered by ecs it's been an amazing ride and and as always want to thank you and i want to thank the guests jeff and john and my co-host andy teb for taking the time out to do this it was a fantastic uh, conversation that we had around zero trust and i hope you enjoyed it now, if you have made it this start this far, uh, it's a little little Easter egg that we've got at the end of this episode. It's just around, you know, some outtakes and some bloopers that we might have had. We were supposed to record this uh, a week prior, but unfortunately, one of the guests, Jeff, wasn't able to record it because he was moving and forgot that we arranged an episode or a recording on that on that day. But uh, when we actually synced up again, Jeff wasn't able to. Uh, hold himself because he needed to go and get a coffee so these are the bloopers that you'll hear at the end of this so i hope you enjoyed it i hope you enjoyed the episode you've got some knowledge all the all the, the good information is in the links below take a look and a listen and this is the tech cube podcast thank you hoping half hoping that you had already been recording and got some of the uh the warm-ups because <laughs> that's probably the uh, best that's probably the best gold we have the whole day <laughs> pretty much it probably was to talk about Jeff. This is going to be all part of the bloopers. Talk about Jeff's uh, moving of his sofa. Getting and, up his coffee. What a, what a high maintenance man. He's poor guy. Oh, God. <laughs> well, we've, we've all... these, are the, uh, these are the kind of riders you can bring to the party, though, John, if you're good at Terraform, right? Mm-hmm. If he was just an AWS guy, we wouldn't pull up with this. But That's right. The, the minute you got Terraform in your backpack, you know, I mean, also I have to post him a load of brown M&Ms. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> looks like in addition to the couch he's got a pretty badass tv over there in the corner i don't know if that's a tv box but it looks massive yeah, yeah probably just yeah, yeah yeah just don't jeff jeff is living some some very high high life right now well, he's, he's he is bad. and he's bought at the peak of the housing market so i hope it stays up there good luck yeah, so do I. oh god <laughs> I'm I'm sat here by the way. We're a technology firm. I'm sat here with a Microsoft Surface on the wall that's two minutes ahead. I'm like our oh. our MTP is clearly amazing. You know, like, well, Microsoft yeah. for you. Microsoft's uh, just trying to beat the market. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. In, in everything, yeah. pretty much. Be predictive. <laughs> it's not who's, great who's a, who have you got in the office today, Andy? Oh, it's packed. There's about fourteen. Um, so there's there's Chris Dunkley, Charlotte, uh, Martin Smithson. Um, when, when we finish this, I'm gonna need to talk to Chris. Dunkley, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, no worries. I'll crap him, yeah.
That's that's you, how you, easy it is. Look, Jeff, I don't have to leave my desk. I've got another cup of coffee. Very fancy. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, Jeff, you ready to rock and roll now? I am. Uh, I'd like to clarify about the TV box that indeed is massive. It's 55 inches. It's my mom's old TV, and it just had a problem with the little decoder chip. So, ah. it, like, literally two out of three times you turn it on, it would just be like, you don't have permission to view that this it. channel. Yeah, is it LG? Not static. Samsung. That's weird, because I just had the same thing with an LG TV, and I had to replace the motherboard with something on eBay. Anyway, sorry, we are recording now. How about that? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. This 55-inch massive TV is my mom's old TV. Like, what What is? What kind of EuroCup viewing experience was she expecting? No, she just sits like 500 meters from the TV, so it has mm. to be that big. All right, all right. Cool. Quality awesome. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, right. but yeah, it's a Samsung, so I'll definitely be installing Piehole before I ever switch it on. You can, yeah, no, not not on the TV in oh, my network. Oh, oh yeah, but so they're, they're notoriously leaking home. all sorts of all sorts of personal information. Speaking of zero trust, now, you can't even trust your TV. 